We're so glad that y'all have joined us online for worship today, and we're positive that God has something specifically to speak just to you. We want you to know that you are always welcome here at First Baptist Azel, and that you can connect with us by going online to fbcazel.org forward slash connect. Now let's hop back into the sermon and hear what God has for us today. Um, Romans chapter 15, verse 13. Would you stand with me as we read God's word? Oh my goodness, what a great passage. This whole chapter is fantastic. Well, Romans, it's Romans. Uh, what, what can I say? But I love this verse, so listen very closely. These are the words of the Apostle Paul to the church in Rome and to you and I. He says, May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace, as you trust in him, so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you and praise you for the beauty of these words and the, the greatness of its promise. I pray that you would help us. Always remember we are a people of hope. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. My message this morning is entitled, The Power of Hope. The Power of Hope. I, I saw that picture and it kind of reminded me of 2020. Uh, maybe you feel that way. You're just kind of hanging on on the nose of a crocodile, keep, trying to keep from getting eaten. The Power of Hope. Hope is a great word. We use it a lot. For many reasons, we name our children hope. That's a great name, by the way. Wikipedia defines hope as an optimistic state of mind that is based on an expectation of positive outcomes with respect to events and circumstances in one's life or the world at large. Now, let me say that again. Hope is an optimistic state of mind, an optimistic state of mind. That is based on an expectation of positive outcomes with respect to events and circumstances in one's life or in the world at large. It's an optimistic expectation. That is, hope is future-based. It's always future-based. We don't ever hope in the past because it's over. Hope in the present. We can have hope in the present. Uh, Paul refers to his present hope, but that present hope, that the hope itself is, even though it's in the present, the hope is future-minded in the Bible. So hope is always an optimistic expectation of future events. Always future, always positive. Nobody places their hope in terrible things, surely. In fact, the opposite of hope is doubt, apprehension, disbelief, uncertainty, faithlessness, anxiety, Apprehensiveness, fearfulness, worry, pessimism, despair, a gloomy outlook, an expectation of the worst. An expectation of the worst. That is the opposite of hope. The world does not know hope, not real hope, because genuine hope is found only in Jesus Christ. Remember, for Christians, Hope is one of the big three that's mentioned in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Uh, Paul talks in that chapter about love, but at the end he says, now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. And so hope is right in the middle of that. 
In other words, what he's saying is all the things in life that you consider important, of, of all of those things, you can boil all of life and its value down to three things, faith, hope, and love. We're going to look at another one of those three next week. A couple of weeks ago, I shared with you, and we talked about love as, uh, as so very important in this world that is saturated by hate that you and I are called to love. And so today, we're going to look at hope. These three remain, faith, hope, and love. That is, if you desire to have a life of value, it's going to have to include these three elements. I've never known of anybody, and you have never known of anybody, that lived a hopeless life that just, it all worked out so well. Hope. These three remain. The context of our passage this morning is found in Romans chapter 15. Paul is writing the church in Rome. As many of you know, Paul had never been to Rome. It's unusual that he write a letter to a church that he'd not been to. Many of the churches he established or helped to establish himself. So he knew them all very well. Well, he'd not been to Rome before, and so he didn't start this church, but he did know some people that were members of this church. And I'm so thankful for the book of Romans because it has just amazing insight into the foundations of our faith. Also, with many of the books in the New Testament and in the Bible, we don't know exactly where or when they were written. That's not the case with Romans. Uh, because of the context of some of the things that are written in Romans, uh, we know that Paul was probably in Corinth or in the Corinth area, when, uh, the area of Corinth, when he wrote Romans. But we also know that he probably wrote it in the spring of 57 AD. Now, that's pretty specific, isn't it? So it's a spring letter from Corinth, that mess of a church in Corinth. And uh, he writes uh, this beautiful letter to the church in Rome. And so to understand his words in verse 13, in that verse that I shared with you a while ago, it's all about hope, mentions it twice in that uh, uh, verse, we need to first look at the beginning of the chapter. And so if you would back up just a little bit with me to Romans chapter 15, verse 1. Romans chapter 15, verse 1. He says this, We who are strong ought to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Each of us should please his neighbor for his good, to build him up. For even Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the insults of those who insult you have fallen on me. For everything that was written in the past was written to teach us so that through endurance and the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. Now, before I continue, that verse right there, he talks about past, present, and future. Did you notice that? For everything that was written in the past was written to teach us so that through endurance and the encouragement of the scriptures, that's present, we might have hope that's future. Verse 5, may the God who gives endurance and encouragement give you a spirit of unity among yourselves as you follow Christ Jesus, so that with one heart and mouth you may glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. As he builds to the great promise of hope, Paul first tells the church in Rome to do four things, and we just read those four things. 
He tells them to hold them. He, he says to hold them up. He tells us to build them up. He tells us to bring them close. And then he says there will be overflow. Hold them up, build them up, bring them close, and overflow. He tells them to hold them up in verse 1. He says, we who are strong, can you go back to verse 1? There you are. We who are strong ought to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Now, he's not talking about physical strength, but you can understand the analogy. He's talking about emotional, mental, and specifically spiritual strength because some of those that are in this room right now are spiritually mighty. You have been grown in the Lord over a period of years and even decades, and you have grown to maturity, and you don't get your feathers ruffled very easily because you have learned through spiritual eyes and through the study of the scripture over the years what is important and what is not. You've learned and grown in your faith, and it is deep and strong, and so you are one of the strong. Now, some that are here this morning, and only you can know this, are on the other end of that spectrum. You're just barely hanging on. You're wondering, why are you even here today? Or in the midst of all that's happening, you're terrified or, or worry all the time. Spiritually, you're just not very strong. And then there are people, most people here today are somewhere in between. So Paul writes this to the church in Rome, even though he's not been there, he knows what churches are like. And he's seen this in church after church after church. And he says, for he's seen strong people in every church. And he says, for those of you who are strong, here's what you need to do. If you think of yourself as strong, you need to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Some of those here, strong people, need not condemnation. They need your strength. They rely on it. And so God has put you here. If everybody here is strong, we have a problem. The problem is nobody's getting saved. <laughs> there are no weak people here. And in a healthy church, there's going to be everybody in the spectrum. If everybody here is weak, we really have a problem because nobody's grow, been growing in the Lord. They're supposed to be strong people, somewhere in between, and weak people. Now, that doesn't mean weak people that you can stay weak, thinking, oh, I don't, I don't have to. We got strong people to hold me up. Uh, but that's the goal, is to get stronger. But the reality is, strong, if you consider yourself spiritually strong, help those who are struggling right now. So if you hear people that are giving into fear or giving into panic or giving into doubt or they're struggling in their conversation with you or in the prayers or whatever it is, if you sense they're struggling, you help them. Bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. The second thing he tells us is not only to hold them up, but to build them up. Verse two, he says, each of us should please his neighbor for his good to build him up. Build him up, not tear him down. I, again, as I shared with you a few weeks ago, we live in a tear-down world where everybody all the time is just going at it. You're just criticizing and complaining and condemning this cancel culture that is a cancer in our, in our world right now where if anybody does anything wrong ever, we just destroy their lives and eviscerate them, both in 
the conservative world and the liberal world, we just, we're just inviscerating each other all the time. But God says, no, you build each other up. Now he's speaking specifically to the church here, but it can apply outside the church as well. But in the church, build each other up. Actually, he says his neighbor, not just his church member, each of us should please his neighbor for his good to build him up. You think of the news media. Do the opposite of that. <laughs> Wouldn't you love to see the number one story on the world news this week? The very first story to say, my goodness, these Republicans and the Democrats got together and they just built one another up this week. Wow. Well, don't hold your breath. But wouldn't that be great? The reality is the news is all about tearing down, tearing down, tearing down, tearing down. But in the kingdom of God, we should be exactly the opposite. Let us build one another up. Doesn't mean we always agree with one another. It doesn't mean that our personalities necessarily get along with one another. But in Christ, we build one another up. So he says, hold them up and build them up. Think of politics. It's the opposite of that. <laughs> Number three, he says, bring them close. Look at verse five. May the God who gives endurance and encouragement give you a spirit of unity among yourselves as you follow Christ Jesus, so that with one heart and mouth you may glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now certainly that's my goal of every Sunday morning. He says, for this God who gives endurance and again and encouragement, that's the here and now, give you a spirit of unity. Now, God has called us together in Christ Jesus. We are one. We're supposed to act like one. We're not supposed to be fighting with one another or hating on one another. We're supposed to act and be as one. And there's a purpose for that. He says, give you a spirit of unity among yourselves as you follow Christ, so that you, with one heart and one mouth, you may glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. There is a unifying experience that should happen every week with you and I in God's house so that we can come together as one and bring God glory. That was not what was happening in Corinth. Paul was writing this letter from Corinth. You talk about a church divided. They had cliques, in fact, in chapter one. Of all, I mean, they got everything wrong. They were a big mess. They were being gluttons at the Lord's Supper and they were having a shouting contest because everybody thought they had the best spiritual gift. And oh, so that when visitors came in, Paul said people were coming in and thinking they were crazy. They were just, they thought they were literally crazy because of what they were doing in worship service. So they had all kinds of problems. But the biggest problem was they were divided. And so in chapter one, the very first problem he dealt with he says, some of you say you follow Paul, some of you say you follow Paulus. And so he said, you got all these cliques in the church. Everybody's righteous. Everybody's superior to the other person. And so he had to deal with that, that reality that, no, you are to be one together. Over the years, actually before I came to First Baptist Church, I have been to a few services where there was not oneness. There was something else. In fact, in both services that I can think of off the top of my head, uh, these services uh, predicated business meetings. Now, one business meeting in one church was to call a staff member. It was a music minister. 
And uh, another business meeting in another church was going to be to fire the pastor. And so they, you had two business meetings that followed two worship services in two different churches. And let me tell you, there were sparks flying. And, and again, I can't, I can't say this clearly enough. It was not here. <laughs> it was not First Baptist. But uh, when those business meetings started, people were jumping up and they were yelling at each other. I don't know if you've ever experienced anything like that in the church, but they were going at it. Uh, you see a bunch of bad, mad, uh, a mad Baptist. And so they're, they're just yelling and accusing and it was just ugly, awful, shameful. One of them happened uh, when I was in high school and I remember sitting there, the first time I'd ever seen anything like that. I remember sitting there in the business being saying, what is going on? Why are these people so mad at each other? Why are they yelling like that? But here's the thing, and here's the real kicker of it. Both churches, as I said, just before those knock-down, drag-out fights in business meeting, just before that, both churches had worship service. And there was singing and praying and worshiping God. All the while, there's this stuff in their hearts and this animosity that's just boiling over while they're giving God praise. Do you think God accepts that kind of worship? No, of course not. They should have just done away with the worship service altogether because they were just wasting their time. You and I should build one another up, bear one another up, hold each other up, build one another up, be united together so that you and I can worship our God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. That's what he tells us to do. So he says we are to hold them up, build them up, and bring them close so that God can be glorified with one heart and warm mouth. And then he says, overflow. He says in our verse for today, if you, if you can go back to today's verse in verse 13, what a great verse. He says, may the God of what? God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him. Because if you really have hope, you're going to have joy and peace. Joy and peace is the collateral damage of hope. It's the side effect of hope, if I can put it that way. If you have hope, real hope, you're going to have joy and peace. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust him so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. I love that. God wants you to have hope, but more than that, he wants you to overflow with hope. You know, again, I would love to see that in the news. Top news story today. Watch these people overflowing with hope. <laughs> Instead, they show just hopeless situation after hopeless situation after hopeless situation. And then in the last two minutes of the newscast, they throw in a, a touchy-feely story. <laughs> you know, but 99% of the whole thing is just so hopeless. But he says, not only should we have hope, but the result is that we will overflow with hope. Can I ask you this morning, are you overflowing with hope in your life? I know that the conversation around the water cooler or this week at school will be coronavirus this, this and coronavirus that. Or the discussion will be, uh, you know, we've got an election coming up in three months and those dirty 
dogs on the other side and this and that, and you see what this person said and that person said, I would love for you to go to work or kids, you to go to school. And as you walk into the place, you're just overflowing with hope. You're just overflowing with hope. That's how God wants you and I to be. That's what he offers for us through Christ. With that, there are a couple of things that we see in this passage I want to share with you before we close today. And the first is this. I have to say this. I mean, I'm assuming you know it, but I have to say it. I want to make it very clear. Placing our hope in the world is pointless. Placing our hope in the world is pointless. Some put their hope in justice. And we see and witness so many bad things online and on the news every day. But the truth is, most atrocities that happen in our world happen apart from our knowledge. We never hear anything about it. Take Christians, for example, and what they go through throughout the world. Most of it goes completely unreported, probably 99.9% of it. I saw an article, this is from the BBC, BBC News. That's uh, the British Broadcasting Company. Uh, their world news tonight in England. This is May 3rd of last year in 2019. They actually did an article about Christians being persecuted throughout the world. And it said this, the persecution of Christians in parts of the world is at near genocide levels, according to a report ordered by Foreign Secretary Jeremy Hunt. The review estimated that one in three people suffer from religious persecution in our world. One in three. And Christians were the most persecuted religious group on earth. In fact, it goes on to say, the report said that Christianity faced being wiped out from parts uh, of the Middle East completely. Evidence shows not only the geographic spread of anti-Christian persecution, but also its increasing severity. In some regions, the article said, the level and nature of persecution is arguably coming close to meeting the international definition of genocide. Wow. So what that means is there are Christians out there this morning that are not sitting in an air-conditioned room on a padded chair in a, in, a, in a comfortable place where we have no fear of anybody breaking in that I know of, that there are Christians out there today that will not survive the day. Right now, they are being tortured beaten, and before the day ends, they will forfeit their life. And most people will never see or hear anything about it in this world. If you're looking for hope through justice in our world, you are going to be sorely disappointed because in this world, there is no justice. Now, ultimately, all things will come before the throne of God and before the judgment seat of Christ and nobody will ever do anything for which they will not stand account, including you and me, as we stand before God's throne. And it is only the grace of God through the blood of Christ for which we will not be punished for those sins. But there is no justice in this world. So if we think we can place our hope in this world or in the justice it has to offer, we're going to be disappointed. Many times we place our hope in the economy or in the government or in a vaccine, 
or in our technology and so many other things. We just, <laughs> we just succumb to those things and we place our hope in those things. Well, we're not alone. People have been doing that for a long time. Way back a long time ago, 1,500 years ago, Jeremiah the prophet said this. This is Jeremiah chapter 14 in verse 22. He said this. Do any of the worthless idols of the nations bring rain? Do the skies themselves send down showers? No. It is you, O Lord our God. Therefore, our hope is in you. For you are the one who does all of this. He says, is it all these other worthless things in a world that takes care of it? He says, no, those are a waste of time. Now, there's something in this that caught my attention. And it's this statement right here. Do the skies themselves send down showers? Now, I often share the gospel. In fact, I was sharing with somebody this week about this very conversation. When I talk about the gospel of Jesus Christ, the fact that Jesus died on the cross for us and was resurrected, and we can have forgiveness of our sins and eternal life. I say those things in faith. But I don't begin with faith. I actually begin my argument with science. I believe the Bible and everything in it actually begins as a scientific argument. That is, you have to back up to the very beginning. And again, that was a conversation I had this week. You have to back up to the very beginning of all things. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and you and I know that there was a beginning of all things. In fact, most scientists, almost all scientists, whether atheists, agnostics, Anglican, Baptist, or Buddhist, most scientists agree that our universe began at one moment in time. We call it the Big Bang, but call it whatever you want, uh, but it really is ultimately a description of Genesis chapter 1 but most agree that the, the universe began at one moment. Now, the reason is we can observe, our scientists have observed that the universe is expanding. So they've gone back. You know, if it's going out, that means it was in earlier. And they, they rated the, the beginning of, of all things, that all of it used to be together. Now, you, and I've told you this before, the amount of matter that is in our universe that makes up our universe is inconceivable to us. It is incomprehensible. We do not have the mathematics to even calculate the amount of matter that is in our universe. We can't comprehend or wrap our head around our galaxy, let alone this universe. In fact, scientists keep saying it's bigger than they thought, it's bigger than they thought, it's bigger than they thought. We, we have no idea when it says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, what that even means. But again, all scientists agree there was a moment of creation. Now, any logical person can determine this, that this universe began in that moment of beginning, the, the power that was required to make it came from within or it came from without. That's the only option, scientifically or as a Christian or any other way. The power to create this universe came from within or from without. Stephen Hawking, probably the most famous smart guy that's ever lived in his last, I think it was his last book called The Theory of Everything. He had this, he proposed this theory or what I would really call a hypothesis that the universe created itself, that is, it was created from within. 
Somehow it made itself and, and posed with the question of how could the universe create itself? How, how is that even possible? He said, well, it created itself because it had to. Whatever that means, what, is, what do you mean it created itself because it had to? First of all, that's never happened since then. It's not reproducible, and that's a requirement in scientific theory. Uh, but he said it, it, it must have done it itself because he couldn't let himself come to the conclusion of the other alternative, which was some outside force provided the power and created out of nothing all of the matter in the universe that is God. Because it is a, it is a, a theory of absurdity to think that it just made itself. To me, that's just ridiculous. Anyway, go back to Jeremiah. Here's what, here, 1,500 years ago, before Stephen Hawking was ever born, here's what Jeremiah says. Do the skies themselves send down showers? And so he, 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 he understood what Stephen Hawking couldn't wrap his mind around. It doesn't do it itself. This universe didn't make itself. It doesn't control itself. It is under the hand of God. He says, no, it is you, O Lord, our God. Therefore, our hope is in you. I don't know what you're going through, but I can tell you this. There is a God that's in control of this world, this universe, who made you, who made this universe, and God cares about you. And so there is this hope that we have because of that. Hope in the world is pointless and depressing. I'm going to show you a video clip, um, and this is a presentation of the gospel ultimately. Uh, but this guy, I'll warn you ahead of time, it's about hope. Uh, I'll warn you ahead of time, this guy can talk a lot faster than I can, so you better pay very close attention because he doesn't, he doesn't uh, restate himself. Watch this. Hope. That's a commonly used word around here. I hope my football team wins the Super Bowl. I hope Johnny asked me to prom. I hope it snows today so I don't have to go to school. I hope I get that job. I get that raise. I pass the test. I score the winning point. I get the car. I don't have to kiss Ann Hilga at Thanksgiving. More seriously. I hope my friend gets better. I hope I do something great with my life. I hope one day there's world peace. Hope. We say it and we hear it all the time. And I don't want to trivialize it or disregard the aforementioned, but honestly, those are temporary things and they're uncertain at best. It's not that they aren't real or that they're wrong, but let's be honest, if your team doesn't win, Johnny doesn't ask you to prom. If it doesn't snow, you don't get that job or the raise or pass the test. If you don't get the car and Ann Hilga happens to smack a big wet one on you, you're going to get through it. And even if your friend doesn't get better, you don't do something great with your life. And even, even if there's never world peace, all of the outcomes are uncertain. And whether they happen or not, the way you want, doesn't really change much in the grand scheme of things because it's all temporary. In the grand scheme of eternity, temporary hopes seem frivolous. See, hope in all the above scenarios is nothing more than a wish, like crossing your fingers, closing your eyes, and saying out loud, I hope I get that raise, I hope I get that raise, I hope I get that raise, is actually going to make a difference. I mean, you don't know what's actually going to happen at all, right? Yet we wish. We click our ruby heels together, we rub the rabbit's foot and avoid walking under ladders and all that, and we slowly open our eyes to see if the wish came true. Well, let me make a quick distinction. There are things we all hope for in the wishing sense, and then there are things we place our hope in. 
So can we really call uncertain, confidence-lacking, rolling the dice, closing your eyes, ruby-clicking, rabbit-foot-rubbing, wishful-thinking hope? Is that what hope is all about? And can we really place our hope in looks or fame or money or power? Shouldn't true hope, ultimate hope, eternal hope be based on truth, facts, something more than a wish, something I can know, be certain of, be confident in? I mean, if that kind of hope exists, then it can change us, encourage us, remove fear, relieve doubt, give us strength and get us through anything, give meaning and purpose to everybody, help us love more, understand more, forgive more, accept more, and it can inspire us to share the source of said hope to anybody and everybody. If that kind of hope exists, it changes everything. So does it exist? Yes, and I'll be blunt. It's only found in Jesus Christ because he is the way, the hope, and the life. All other hope is temporary, uncertain, wishful thinking at best. Oh, come on. What if I hope that every little thing's going to be all right? Or we all just become non-existent when we die? Or that I'll get to heaven because I, I lived a good life? Well, rub the rabbit's foot and roll the dice, Jimmy. Those are uncertain wishes based on flimsy guesses. 1 Timothy 2.5.6 declares, There is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all. John 3. 16 states, whoever believes in him, that is Jesus, should not perish but have everlasting life, which is why Paul confidently wrote in Ephesians 1, 18 and 19, you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. Without Christ, we are still dead in our trespasses and separated from God, which makes us godless and wicked. And Job chapter 27 verse 8 says, for what is the hope of the godless when God cuts him off, when God takes away his life? Without Christ, there is no real hope, period. So do me a favor and finish this sentence. I place all my hope in blank. If Jesus isn't in that blank, you have no hope. That pretty much covers it, folks, and I think we can safely say that this thought, this concept, this idea that you can have true hope without God has been debunked. Adios. Okay, I hope you were able to catch at least some of that. Uh, but I love that. So that brings me to the final point, and that is our hope is in Jesus Christ, specifically in Christ. Real hope is alive in Christ. So uh, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. If you look there with me, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3, Peter says, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade, kept in heaven for you. Now, here's an interesting passage. He talks about hope as a living thing. The living hope is found in Jesus Christ in the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, which has already happened when this passage was written. That's past. But he then says, and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade, kept in heaven for you. That's future. He says what Christ did in the past guarantees or ensures for his people a future in heaven and we don't have to worry about it rusting away or spoiling away or fading away. It is there for us when this life is over, our future hope. So how should having hope affect you this week? Did you know that people who have hope are more likely to show up for work, more likely to be productive, and to consider themselves happy? A number of studies indicate that hopeful people tolerate pain better than less hopeful people. Did you know that? How does it affect our pain sensors? I don't know, but that's what statistics say. In a recent Harvard study, researchers examined the impact of hope in nearly 13,000 people. And again, this is not a Christian study, it's Harvard. Uh, they studied the impact of hope in nearly 13,000 people with an average age of 66. They found those with more hope throughout their lives had better physical health, better health behaviors, better social support, and a longer life. 
Hope also led to fewer chronic health problems, less depression, less anxiety, and a lower risk of cancer. Wow. Hope is powerful. That's why I entitled it The Power of Hope this morning. It has the power to change your life, but hope, and this is what the Harvard study probably didn't grasp, hope, real hope, is found in Christ alone. Sometimes I visit church members in their home or in the hospital, and over the years, I've been pastoring for 28 years now, over the years, I've had many times, because I've done hundreds of funerals, over 100 funerals, I don't know exactly how many, but I've done a lot of funerals over the years. And so many of those visits that I've made with church members have been the final visit. They're on their deathbed. Now, I don't always get there in time, or we don't always know ahead of time that this is going to be the last meeting with them, because they are... are um, anticipating recovery, and sometimes they just don't recover. But many of the times that I visit with them, they know it's our last visit. I know it's our last visit, that when I pray with them at the end, that that's the last time I'll ever get to pray with them. And when I walk out of that room, it's the last time I will ever see them this side of heaven. But here's what's interesting. I can tell you that often, not always, but often, those conversations and those, meaning, uh, those meetings are not sad or depressing. Very often, they are just the opposite. There is peace in the room. There's, I, I've had meetings with members on their deathbed that was actually a joyous meeting. There was smiling. There was peace. Because they have hope. And that's what hope does. Not only does it make this life better, but it focuses us and ensures on us a life to come that is after, through Christ. Meetings that are hopeful. If this were the last time I were to see you today, and you knew this was the last day of your life, would you be filled with hope or terror? Edward Mote, he was a cabinet maker for 37 years of his life, but then he had a late conversion in life, a late calling, and he became a Baptist minister. He ministered as a Baptist preacher for a couple of decades before dying. One day, he had the same challenge and opportunity that I have as a pastor. He went to see a lady in his congregation who was on her deathbed. The year was 1834. He sat down with her and wanted to share with her hopeful words in this last meeting and didn't know quite what to say, but he had written a poem, jotted down some notes to make a poem earlier in the day, and he thought, you know, I'm going to share with her these words that I wrote down, and here's what he said to her. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly trust in Jesus' name. On Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. All other ground is sinking sand. I want you to know today there is hope in this world. There is hope for you. And his name is Jesus Christ. Pray with me. Father, we thank you and praise you that we don't have to go through this life without hope.
that we are born, we live, and we die just like any other animal. And our life is pointless. It all comes to nothing. Ah, we thank you that it's not supposed to be that way, and it doesn't have to be that way. That we have hope that our life can have meaning, that we can have forgiveness of our sins through Jesus Christ, and we can be reconciled to you. We can pray to you as we are praying now. We can commune with you, and your Spirit will lead us and guide us in our life, and our life can have value through you and through Christ. And even more, we have hope that this life is not the end, but only the beginning. That there is an eternity that awaits us through Christ. Your word tells us that he died for our sins on the cross in our place. That they put him on a tomb after he died. But he didn't stay in that tomb. On the third day, he came back to life that first Easter Sunday morning you gave him power over death. And he is alive today, our resurrected Lord. And because he had power over death, you, through your son, are offering power over death for your people. Those who will become followers of Christ, who will confess him as Savior and Lord and believe in faith in the resurrection. Father, you give us that great promise that there is an inheritance awaiting us that will not perish, spoil, or fade. That our hope is built on nothing less than Jesus Christ and His righteousness. We thank you for true hope. So Father, as we go about this week, we hear the bad news on the news channels or we read the bad news that is on social media or on the news online, or we go to school or we go to work and we hear just bad, bad, evil, bad news. News of discouragement, news of uncertainty, news of fear. That we are not affected by any of it. That we will rise above it. That we will be strengthened with power, through Jesus Christ, that we will edify and encourage one another, that we will lift one another up, and that we as one will be unified in glorifying the name of our Savior and the hope of our salvation for eternity in heaven. Oh, we thank you for that hope. As we're praying, no one's looking around. Can I challenge you this morning? Do you have the hope of Jesus Christ in your life or are you just pretending? Are you hopeful or fearful? Are you confident or terrified? I want you to know God wants you to live a life of hope, real hope, through Jesus Christ. Maybe you want to come and say, Pastor, I want to give my life to Jesus. I want to surrender to Him today. If you're watching online, I want you to know that God loves you. He sent Jesus to die for you on the cross in your place, and He offers you hope in your life. Your life can count for something. I don't care who you are or what you've done. Your life can count for something. I don't care how young or old. God wants your life to matter. To 
because your life matters to him. Would you be willing to give your life to Jesus this morning? Just surrender. Pray, Lord, I surrender my life to my Savior, Jesus. I believe he died for me in my place on the cross. And I surrender to him. I believe in faith. After he died, in three days he came back to life. I believe that in faith. And I give my life to him. If you'll do that, Christ will forgive your sins, redeem your heart and your soul, and you will have everlasting could be this morning you just want to pray and say, God, thank you for the hope that I have. Help me not to listen to that junk. Help me to be the strong where others are weak because of the hope that I have in Christ. If God is speaking to you right now, this invitation is for you. Would you stand? Nobody's looking around. And as you pray, I challenge you. And maybe God is calling you or your family to join with First Baptist Church or just want to come and kneel. If God is leading right now, as we pray, you come. Well, thanks for joining us today online for our worship service. We hope that you are ministered and encouraged to while you're with us. And we just want to remind you that you can connect with us online by going to fbcazel.org forward slash connect. We hope to see you again next week.